one of my favorite Onion articles has this as its headline, Area Child Disappointed to Learn Parents' Love is Unconditional. Irvine, California. Saying he doesn't even feel like trying anymore, eight-year-old Max Bledsoe expressed his strong disappointment Monday after learning that his parents' love is unconditional. I always thought that they loved me because I'd actually earned it. But unfortunately, it turns out their affection is apparently limitless, said a frustrated Bledsoe. Wondering aloud the point of doing well in school and learning how to play the piano and always going to bed before 9 p.m. if his parents were just going to keep on loving him no matter what. I mean, look at me. I just wasted the last three years of my life trying to win their approval by being a good kid, and for what? To get the love that was coming to me anyway? Bledsoe added that he envied his adopted younger brother who really has to work for his parents' love. End quote. Uh, It's funny because it's ridiculous. And it's funny because we are this ridiculous. First thing I want us to see this morning in the text is that God makes a gracious covenant. Uh, Paul, in trying to make his point to the Galatians, wants to talk about three major figures in biblical history, and hopefully you saw it there. He wants to talk about Abraham and Moses and Jesus, and in particular, three covenants that are made uh, based on these three particular biblical figures. And he wants us to see that one of them is not like the others. Maybe you remember, I grew up on Sesame Street, the song, One of These Things is Not Like the Others. Well, Paul is telling us that here as well, that of these three, one of them is an outlier, while two of them go hand in hand. So he begins in verse 6 by speaking about Abraham, and in particular about the nature of Abraham's covenant. And for him to understand Abraham's covenant is to understand the blessing of Jesus that comes as a result of God fulfilling that particular covenant. And so if we look at Abraham's covenant first, this gracious covenant, we see first it's a covenant of blessing. Uh, And we see that in verse 9 and 14, those who believe are blessed along with Abraham. Verse 14, in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And so we should see at least at, at the very base level, the Abrahamic covenant is characterized by blessing. And the second thing that it's characterized by is promise. It becomes clear that the idea of a promise permeates that this particular covenant in history. If you think about the Mosaic covenant, a lot of what we discussed last week, if obligation and then the resulting reward or curse really identifies the covenant that was made with Moses, do this and live, promise and gift are clearly what characterize this covenant. It's not duty and reward, but promise and gift. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham, and then it follows in verse 17. The law which came 430 years afterward does not make the promise void. So he can even speak of each covenant in this way. He calls the one covenant law. He calls the other covenant promise. That's how uh, much these two principles characterize each. You see, from the beginning, this is so. God came to an idol-worshiping Gentile that was childless and far past his expiration date, and he said, you know what? I am going to give you 
children. And he says, in fact, I'm going to give you so many children that you can't count them. So great will be the family that I give to you that I'll give you a land, actually, that will provide for them, a land flowing with milk and honey. The whole world, in fact, is going to be blessed because of you, and I will give you, in, 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 in essence, at the end, the whole world is your inheritance, according to Romans chapter 4. And ultimately, I'll also give myself to you to be your God. I mean, you can't read the book of Genesis carefully and not see it. I mean, after the failure of our first parents in the garden, uh, which then gives way to the failure of the whole world uh, that we see come to it, uh, uh, a head in the flood and the destruction of humanity, and then within chapters, the whole world has gathered again at Babel to rebel against God. There's this constant failing after failing after failing. And then God enters the story and approaches this idol-worshiping man from Ur of the Chaldees who does not know God, who is not looking for God. And God says to him, I have a promise to make to you. I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will make your name great. You can't read it without seeing this over and over. I will, I will, I will. There's not a thou shalt in the promise to be found that he makes to Abraham. So one-sided was this particular affair that when the covenant was made, God made it with Abraham as if Abraham was dead on the day that they signed the contract. I mean, you've seen the story. It starts out normally enough. Well, normal for ancient or Eastern life, not normal for us at all. But God tells Abraham, I want you to go get this list of animals, you know, go hunt them down, and then I want you to cut them all in half, and I want you to spread them, uh, you know, uh, to the left and to the right, in so doing to make basically a walkway, a sidewalk, that is framed by all of these dead bodies. And we think uh, that sounds crazy, but this was the way of signing contracts in this particular time period. This is how you knew that each party involved was going to keep their word, is that you would slay these animals, and then both parties would walk between the pieces and say, may this happen to us, may this happen to me, if I don't keep the word that I've spoken to you. And it was a way of binding each other one to the other. I mean, we know this. I've used this example before, but growing up, I don't know if kids do this anymore, we did a lot of eeny, meeny, miny, mowing, uh, which I don't know if that exists anymore. But we also did a lot of cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? And so what you're saying is, you know, I cross my heart. If I don't keep my word, what? May death come to me. And if that's not enough, stick a needle in my eye, um, which I don't know what comes first. I hope the dead part comes and then the needle part. But pretty morbid for a childhood promise, but it was a way of saying May bad things happen to me if I don't keep my word to you. And that's what's happening in these ancient covenants, that they would walk between these animal pieces and the parties really would be saying, may death come to me, like has come to this animal, if I don't keep my side of this agreement. Well, Abraham gets all the paperwork together for signing day, all the bodies are strewn along the path, and then all of a sudden Abraham just happens to fall into a deep sleep. I guess he was you know, tired from all of the hard work. God basically puts him under anesthetic of some sort so that Abraham will not be involved. And according to the text, he has some sort of you know, strange fever dream where he can hear what's happening, he can see what's happening, but he's not involved in any way with what's happening. Instead, he sees a smoking torch, 
uh, I'm sorry, a fiery torch and a smoking pot pass through the middle of the pieces, which again, the Bible's weird, those are weird images. But if you were an Israelite and you had been led in the wilderness by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day, and then you saw a big smoking cloud and then a fiery pot walking through the pieces, you would know what it meant. That God himself is walking through this covenantal path saying, may this happen to me alone if I don't keep my word that I've just promised to Abraham. Abraham is off on the sidelines watching as an utter spectator. He has no part in the keeping of this particular agreement. God himself, he says, will do it. I will take on the obligations. And so it's a covenant of blessing and it's a covenant of promise, and therefore Paul says it's obviously therefore a covenant that requires faith. Abraham's covenant is to be received by faith because what else could it be? There's nothing to be done. There is just something, or even better, someone to be believed. God made a promise, and now you will believe what he has said. Of course, with that promise, surely there were expectations. It's not that God never called Abraham to obedience. He did. But it was always in response to the promise, and the promise was not dependent in any way on Abraham's obedience. So God didn't say, walk before me and be blameless, Abraham, and if you don't, that's it. I'm not keeping my promises anymore. He said, just because I'm your God and because I'm doing all this, here's how I want you to live. Abraham, the man of faith, was required, in one sense, that was the requirement, to have faith, but it was far from even a perfect faith. I mean, you remember the stories with him. He tried to help God along with this whole fulfilling of the promise, by happening to agree with his wife when she brought up the idea of, like, maybe you should, you know, take my younger maidservant and have a baby with her. And Adam's like, well, I mean, Abraham, he said, well, I mean, if it's for the Lord, I guess I'll just do it, you know. Even when Isaac is born, he inherits the name of laughter. Yes, because God has brought joy and made them laugh, but also it's this double entendre that they had laughed mockingly at the word of God, saying, especially uh, uh, Sarah, how can this happen at our age? I mean, twice the very womb of Sarah and therefore the seed of promise in that womb was put into jeopardy when Pharaoh and Abimelech kidnapped her and abducted her, uh, where he also, you know, where they abducted Abraham's wife, or as he affectionately also referred to her at those times, his sister. Um, But even then, far from rebuking Abraham, in those instances, God remedies each situation, and Abraham is left laden down with riches and blessing and honor at the end of each of these episodes. It is a promise received by faith, and even that, scripturally speaking, it's not even necessarily stellar faith, but it is faith all the same in the God who made these promises. But the law is not of faith. And so the second thing we see in our text this morning is a legal covenant. What Paul wants the Galatians to know is that the law is not like the promise. And that that what was given to Moses was not like, nor did it erase, what God had promised to Abraham. And this is a fairly confusing topic, which is why I'm covering it this way today. Otherwise, I'd have to redo this like ten different times throughout the series. So I'm hoping to lay the groundwork here. What we see in the legal covenant is that it is a covenant of curse. 
not blessing like Abraham. Paul mentions it repeatedly in this text. The law brought with it a curse, both the threat of a curse and ultimately the actual realities of a curse because no one keeps the law. Cursed is the one who does not abide by the whole thing all the time. And while blessing might have been offered in the law, curse was always threatened at the exact same time, and it was always the preeminent reality because of who the law met. And so it's a covenant of curse, but notice it's also a covenant of obligation, not promise. The curse comes about because it is a covenant of obligation. The law is not of faith. The law demands that things be done, not simply believed. And if done, then a reward is the result of your labor. And if not done, or if done improperly, curse is the result. Notice when this covenant was made, what we read in Exodus 24 this morning, uh, you will notice that Israel is wide awake, and their eyes are wide open, and to their uh, chagrin, so are their mouths. Moses comes and he tells the people, did you hear his language? All the rules, which sounds a little bit different than what Abraham got. And all the people answered, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then half the blood is thrown on the altar, and then he rereads the entirety of the covenant, and the people repeat, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient, and Moses takes the other half of the blood and he throws it on the people. Clearly legal, clearly threatening, clearly binding on everyone who agreed to it. The blood covering them, though in one sense is a sign of mercy, it was a mercy that spoke to the fact that the obligation unmet would require that kind of severe mercy, a death. And so it's a, curse, it's a covenant of curse, it's a covenant of obligation, but it's also, and this is important, it's a subservient covenant. What we must see if we're to understand the Bible at all is that Paul makes plain that this law, being second, doesn't undo the covenant of promise, which was first. Instead, it serves it. Notice the law for a time was laid on top of the promise in order to serve the purpose of God. But it doesn't erase or undo the promise made to Abraham nor to his children. It is legal, but it is legal with reference to the land that the people were inheriting and the nation as a whole that was inheriting it. So if you look at the nation of Israel as one person, and you should. Why? Because, you know, when Moses, uh, when God first interacts with Pharaoh and he sends Moses, he says, you tell Pharaoh to let my son go in order that he may worship me in the wilderness. When addressing the nation, he addresses them as if he's uh, he addresses the whole nation as if they are one man. I should remind you of somebody. Uh, it is the retelling of the story of Adam, and the nation is being used as a type of Adam in the Old Testament. Like Adam, if they obey, they will stay in this garden land flowing with milk and honey. If they don't obey, they'll be cast out just like their father before them. But it wasn't a covenant made with them as individuals that somehow undid the Abrahamic covenant. It wasn't if God was coming to them and saying, this is how you get to heaven on a personal level. Because, Paul says in verse 11, no one was ever justified by the law. Which either means no one in the Old Testament was ever justified, or that there was another covenant 
that was already in place by which they could be saved that Moses didn't undo. So for instance, no one in the whole first generation of Israel ever made it into the promised land. They all died in the wilderness, including Moses and Aaron. Does that mean Moses and Aaron aren't going to get into heaven? Well, no, we see in the book of Hebrews that Moses is a man of faith, and surely he will be celebrating with us in glory. But how? Because they believed in the God that made promises to Abraham. That they had faith in that gracious God and those gracious promises. Moses was a man of faith, and thus with Abraham, and by Abraham's covenant he was justified by faith, even though... Under the covenant that God made with him in his time, he died outside of the promised land based on the rules of it. So he's buried in the wilderness, but his spirit is with the Lord. (laughs) One based on the Abrahamic covenant, the other on the covenant with Moses. I think we see these dynamics most powerfully in one of the very first episodes with Israel after they've received the law. You remember the golden calf incident? I mean, it takes moments before Israel goes off the rails. You don't have to look long. Be like, how are they going to do with this whole legal covenant thing? It's like, oh, one page in. That's that's not going to go well. This is how they start. This is not uh, boding well for the future. So they all set up an image. They worship it. God comes down. He's angry. And what does he say? He tells Moses, because Moses wasn't with them at the time. He says, get out of the way. I'm going to kill all of them. And Moses says, don't do that. And he says, don't do that because we had a deal. Remember all the laws you gave us? Notice Moses doesn't bring up anything about that. He doesn't say we had a deal. He doesn't say we kept the rules. He says instead, remember Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob that you swore by your own self, I will multiply them. When they failed the covenant and God comes with the curses of the covenant saying, move out of the way, they're going to die. Moses doesn't say, remember the Mosaic covenant. He says, remember that you swore on yourself to Abraham. And it says God relented from the destruction that he had promised or that he had intended to do. Well, that brings up an obvious question that Paul is going to answer for the next several weeks. But why then the law? I mean, what's the use Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. Verse 22, it imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 24, it was our guardian until the Christ came. You see, Sinai, Paul is going to tell us, was needed, but it was temporary. It was a parenthesis until God could bring the new covenant in Jesus to pass. And therefore, when he comes, it must go because its usefulness has passed. That is what I want us to see in our final point this morning, a new covenant. Why this way? Notice the law exposes something ultimately that we need to see, the either-or of our entire existence. I mean, it is an either-or. It's reflected from our plight in Adam onward. Either we do what is right by God's definition of what is right, not our own, and we continue to do it, and we do it always, or else, that's one way, or we can be blessed by believing a gracious promise 
and have God act on our behalf. That is the either-or of this entire world. Uh, And any turning of the good news of Jesus Christ into saying, well, yes, believe, but you also must do all of these things to inherit, Paul says that is to go back to a covenant structure that has always been fruitless. It's never worked. Jesus supersedes the law, yes, because he, 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 he arrives at the, as the fulfillment of it, but he supersedes it because he is better than it, because his way of working is better than the law. He gives us a standing that the law never could, and thus replaces it as a way of standing as right before God. And that is good news for human beings who just can't seem to get it right. Uh, From Adam to the whole world under Noah to Babel to Israel to us. I mean, the law, Paul says, exposed Israel and thus it exposes us and it just shows us the utter futility of seeking belonging with God by doing. But it also delivered to Israel, you'll notice, the promised seed of Abraham in the flesh. Through the law, and thus the separating of Israel, it delivered the seed of Abraham that had been promised. It did its job, and thus it can now step off stage, for the promise made to Abraham has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, born under that law. The law preserved the seed and prepared all of Israel to know that they were going to need him when he came. Because the law separated from the nations, we have a seed born of a virgin in Israel, according to the right tribes. But once he came, Israel should have said, man, we really need a seed because this other way of working is not fruitful. So for Paul to go back to Moses is not only a sin, it's just stupid. It's never worked, and it's not going to work now. Instead, he says, look to Jesus. He is the promised seed of Abraham, and this being the promised seed teaches us something about grace and about the goodness of God. It teaches you about the reach of the gospel and its utter one-sidedness in a way that I'm going to tell you now is completely uncomfortable and it's against your nature and it's nearly impossible for you to believe saved by the grace of God. I mean, remember God walking through those pieces? God does that because Abraham says, like, how do I know you're going to give me all this stuff? And you made promises, but I mean, I don't own any of that land yet, and I don't have a kid yet. How do I know you're going to do what you say? And then God says, remember, if I don't keep my word, may I be slain like these animals. He promised harm to himself if he failed. Well, that should pose a little bit of a problem in your mind. Because what is odd is that harm was done to God. But he didn't fail. I mean, did he fail to keep his promise to Abraham? Is that why the curse of death on a tree comes to him, according to Paul? I mean, why does Jesus suffer curse sanctions if God doesn't fail, if he keeps his promises to Abraham and Jesus doesn't disobey even the law of Moses? And this is when we see the audacity of the grace of God. Because to even enter into a covenant with man, wherein you promise fallen man 
nothing but blessing. To do so was to enter into the need to deal with man's sin once and for all as a holy God. God walking through those pieces, he wasn't merely saying, I will keep my promise if I fail. No, he was vowing at that moment that he was going to bring harm to himself because it was the only way to assure that Abraham would ever possess all that God had promised him. It's the only way to assure that what happened with Adam, what happened with Israel, would not happen to us. God must act. He must do. He must give even to the giving of his very self. I mean, the horrible and the glorious irony of this covenant is that God has to die in order to fulfill it. As Paul says, they crucified the Lord of glory. God was so committed to keeping his word to Abram and to you now, those who have faith to Abram's seed, that he vowed harm to his own person in order that he might eternally, that you might eternally be saved and possess the blessing of God and the God of blessing forever. And all Abram could do is watch in nightmarish horror. He added nothing. He did nothing. He has no part in the blessing coming to pass. Which is why this promise is of the utmost comfort. And why its fulfillment in flesh is even more comforting. I mean, Abraham wants to know, how do I know, God, that you're really good on your word? I mean, you want to know that God is going to be good to you? I mean, how do you know that God's going to keep loving you? I mean, how do you know that he really is working all things together for good? When on, by sight, it sure looks at times as if things have fallen off the rails. How do you know that he's going to keep you to the end, that this isn't going to end up in a shipwreck? Well, God's answer to those questions is because you have absolutely nothing to do with it. It really and truly is all of grace and not from doing. Dostoevsky gets to this in Crime and Punishment. When one of his characters says these words, at the last judgment, Christ will come to us and say, come you also. Come drunkard, come weakling, come you children of shame. And he will say all the same, come. And the wise and the prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome them? And he will say, I welcome them. If I welcome them, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has ever been judged worthy. And he will stretch out his arms, and we will fall at his feet, and we will cry out sobbing, and then we will understand all. We will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. Dostoevsky put this soaring gospel in the mouth of a character, Marmladov, a bumbling drunkard whose family is left destitute because he spends all that he has on his addiction. 
And this man utters this gospel, this gospel of free grace, even while still in a stupor that will ultimately lead to his death. Yes, grace even for that slob, even to the bitter end. Do you believe that? I mean, it's hard. We are like the child disappointed that our parents' love is unconditional. I wonder if he really thinks God's love is like that. Can grace really be true? Do we even want it to be true? God says it's all true. Just look. I mean, look at the cross. That is my commitment to my word, my commitment to you, my commitment to sinners. Look, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take a seat. Take a drink. Take it in. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God, the true sons of Abraham. How is it possible? And how is it possible? You and me, God's people, you and me, mostly Gentiles, sons of Abraham. One word, grace. The gracious promise of God where he has sworn and he has shown that he will stop at nothing to bless you. May he give you the grace to believe that his love really is that unconditional toward you. Let us pray.